If I might have your attention, I invite you to make your way back to your seats as we remain standing, opening up God's Word to Mark chapter 16. You have that passage printed in your, uh, in your bulletins uh, as well. And um, characteristic of Mark's gospel, his account of the resurrection is minimalist because he's aiming at our response. Um, Mark, th- throughout his gospel, is asking the question, what are we going to do with the risen Lord? The entire gospel has been aiming uh, for this point. And so here is his account of the resurrection, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But go, tell his disciples... And Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word and this glorious account that our Savior has risen that He is not a dead Savior, that He is a living and reigning King. And might He now, through the Spirit of God, intercede for us and draw us near unto You. For it is in Your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. may be seated. What happens when the unbelievable comes true? Life changes. That's what happens. Life changes. Just ask Sergio Garcia, right, who only a week ago won his first major championship golf tournament at this year's Masters in in Augusta. And as you know, many of you know that Sergio is a Spaniard, and yet he's no longer a newcomer on the tour. When he first began playing on the PGA Tour, he was touted as an up-and-comer, someone who was sure to win many tournaments and major championships. But after 73 tries, the wins were few, and the championships were non-existent. Five years ago, after a third-round meltdown at Augusta, 12th place finish, Sergio uh, concluded, you know, I just don't have that thing that I need to have to win. I've come to the place after 13 years of playing golf that I really am only playing for second or third place. The reporters asked him, well, Sergio, what exactly are you missing? He said, everything. I'm missing everything. You know, I'm glad that Sergio was wrong because five years later and just this past week, he is now a major tournament champion having won the Masters. This is what he said about the win. It's been an amazing week. I'm going to enjoy it for the rest of my life. 
Sergio thought he couldn't win, but he was wrong. He, he did it. You know, it's interesting that the unbelievable often happens in the world of sports. Some of you will remember back in 1990 when we thought no one could beat Mike Tyson in the ring, that Buster Douglas came and knocked him out in the 10th round. The first word that the announcer uttered when Mike Tyson was knocked out, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Going back even further, 1980, the Winter Olympics, the United States hockey team, no one thought that that they or anyone could defeat the Soviet superpower hockey team until the Americans stepped on the ice. And they won the gold medal, and everyone said it was unbelievable. Just this past fall... Major League Baseball's World Series champions, the Chicago Cubs, after 108 years of feudal torment, (laughs) the Cubs won the World Series. And what did everybody say? It was unbelievable. The unbelievable. In the world of sports, the unbelievable often happens. But what else do we learn from the world of sports? That it loves hyperbole. It loves hyperbole. Because all of those stories, and we could multiply them, are not technically unbelievable. The better term that we would use is unlikely to be sure the deck was stacked against all of these future champions. But they still played to win, and it was still possible. It felt unbelievable because it was a glorious long shot come true. And so it begs the real question, right? Is there anything that meets the criteria? Is there any event that is truly unbelievable and yet has come true? And of course, you know where I'm going with this. This is Easter's hope, isn't it? Easter's hope. The good news of Easter is that though Jesus the Christ died and was sealed up in the tomb, He came forth and resurrected and came out from the tomb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is just this sort of news. And if we let the resurrection be our guide, then we can understand the lesson that when the unbelievable comes true, it changes our lives forever. When the unbelievable comes true, it changes everything forever. You know, it's interesting about the gospel accounts is they they make clear that that not only did Jesus die, but they weren't expecting resurrection. The the disciples were utterly unlike Sergio Garcia, who, though he may have thought his chances were slim to win the Masters, he still played the tournament. And yet, when we come to the gospel accounts, we encounter no one who was expecting, no one who was betting on a resurrection, least of all the disciples. In all of the gospel accounts, we have this refrain of Jesus' death. In fact, this is one of the key reasons why we come to the gospel accounts and find them credible is is because no one would have told the story this way if they were planning on a resurrection. If one was going to perpetrate a hoax, 
then no one would have schemed the story in this way because Jesus died and multiple witnesses confirmed it. The first people who confirmed that Jesus had died were the Romans. And in case you're wondering, the Romans knew how to kill somebody. They knew how to take a person's life on the cross. They were experts at it. So good at it that Pilate tells us that Jesus expired quickly. He he was surprised when the word came that Jesus had already expired, and so he got confirmation from one of the Roman centurions. Has he died? And that was an important bit of information because Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of the ruling council members who had presided over Jesus' sentence of crucifixion, was also, Mark tells us, expecting the kingdom of God and may have quietly and secretly hoped in the news that Jesus shared, but he wanted to take the body now that his hopes were dashed. That there was nothing to be done to Jesus except tend to his body. And if this were a hoax, then why would he have gone to such trouble? Why would he have gone to all of that trouble if he were participating in a hoax? Joseph of Arimathea knew Jesus was dead. He, he had handled his body. And the women too. Remember, they, they were standing off at a distance, watching to see what Joseph was going to do with Jesus' body. They followed him, seeing the tomb where they laid him, because they were going to come back later, right on the first day of the week after the Passover. And they were going to anoint his body with spices and oils to stave off the the stench of his decaying flesh because within this tomb, other bodies would soon be laid. It was a custom and it would have shown um, care to Jesus and the community. This is what you did when people died. Jesus was dead. Multiple witnesses confirmed it. And what is more, no one was expecting the resurrection, least of all the disciples. That, that, that's all the more interesting because Jesus had said, I will rise from the grave. After three days, he had predicted his death and his resurrection. He did it in chapter 8 and chapter 9 twice and in chapter 10. And yet the disciples were befuddled by Jesus' words, thinking he must have been speaking in riddles. They had no imagination for the resurrection. It was an unbelievable thought. Not an unlikely thought that was, well, possible. And if it happened, it would have been great and awesome. No, it wasn't an unlikely thought. It was an unbelievable thought, and so no one thought it. And then thirdly, who were the first witnesses to the resurrection? We come back to the women. They were the ones leaving that first day on that Easter morn, early in the morning, walking to the tomb. All of the gospel accounts testify that the women were the first to the resurrected Christ. And yet that's interesting because women were held in a low social status. Their testimony, in fact, wasn't even held credible in a court of law. And so if someone was going to fabricate a hoax, 
If someone was going to perpetrate a myth, then surely you wouldn't have had women feature so prominently in the story because everyone would have known you can't trust women to tell the truth. That, that women are featured so prominently in the story, particularly in that culture, means that it must have happened that way. You couldn't untell the truth. The women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. But they weren't expecting it. It was unbelievable. The resurrection was not something expected. It's, it's not unlikely. It's unbelievable. Unlikely is betting $60 that Sergio Garcia will win the Masters and then winning $42,000. Did you know someone did that? And it happened. Bet $60, turned it into $42,000. A glorious outcome. An unlikely outcome, but not unbelievable. The resurrection was unbelievable. Nobody was betting on it. Nobody was counting on it. No one was planning for it. No one was imagining it and making up a story because if anyone was going to be looking for a resurrection, it would have been the disciples. And what we have from the accounts, not just here in Mark, but Matthew and Luke and John, is they weren't. They weren't looking for resurrection. It was unbelievable news. And yet, here's the problem. The New Testament gives us credible accounts of the resurrection. Credible accounts that, that compel our belief. We have this unbelievable idea matched to a believable, credible account that then compels our faith. The New Testament asserts that the unbelievable thing happened. Jesus, the one who died came back to life, and now it reigns forevermore. This unbelievable thing actually happened. And what exactly are we saying happened to Jesus? Well, first of all, He came back in bodily form. Jesus didn't appear as a ghostly or angelic figure. We know this because He ate with the disciples. He walked with the disciples. John, uh, I'm sorry, Thomas in John's gospel came and touched the very scars in Jesus' side and in His hands. And the disciples could have told the difference between an angelic figure, a spiritual apparition, and a bodily um, um, person because the resurrection accounts include angelic figures. And they distinguish them, right? That there were angelic messengers, those who were sent by God to announce this good news, and yet they, being immaterial and spiritual, are distinct from the bodily resurrected Lord Jesus. His body had been raised up, which is also different from saying that His body was resuscitated. Some have said that. That Jesus didn't really die on the cross. And so He was resuscitated from that, that near-death experience. But that's really a nonsensical idea because had Jesus been resuscitated from an attempted crucifixion, which, by the way, no one survives an attempted crucifixion. Because it's so intent on taking life. You don't survive an attempted crucifixion. But let's just, 
well, for the moment, suspend our rational faculties. Jesus wouldn't come back and cook breakfast for Peter and walk up to Galilee and hang out with the disciples on the Emmaus Road. He would have been barely alive. He would have had to have been tended to by the disciples and everyone in his midst. No, he wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected to a glorious, everlasting bodily estate, which means he was Jesus, but he was also different in some ways. Times he wasn't recognizable. He could appear in a room suddenly and disappear. He could walk through doors. It was Jesus. But there was something glorious about His transformed existence. Bodily, yes, but also glorious. But the bigger question is, is this credible? Is there proof? And that's where we begin to dig into the details of the story again. Because not only do we have this unbelievable news, not expected, but we also are given credible accounts of it actually happening. It was confirmed by several eyewitnesses. Within only a few years of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul is naming names. This person was with the resurrected Jesus, as many as 500, in fact. He writes in a letter um, to the church at Corinth. And any of those people could have easily debunked the words of the apostles, the words of the apostle Paul. And not only that, it would have been easy to debunk the myth of the resurrection. All the officials would have had to do is present the body. If someone claims a resurrection from the grave and you show the body, well, that pretty much kills the myth. But the officials didn't have a body. And they really had only one way to explain the resurrection, and that was that the disciples had stolen the body. Which then brings us to another interesting question, because if the disciples had stolen the body to perpetrate a hoax, then what explains their sudden zeal? What explains their bold courage? What explains their willingness to die for something that they knew to be false? Because clearly, prior to the resurrection, the disciples are a dispirited, disoriented, confused, hopeless band. And then within only days, their entire worldview shifts. And they are ready to die for this news. And not only this, they're ready to lead others to die for this truth. It would be one thing to say that they were willing to die for something they knew to be false. But they were also leading others to die for something that they knew to be false. And one thing that we must dispense with if they did that is that Christianity is in any sense moral. Because that would have been a great act of immorality. And so really, the only way for us to make sense of the resurrection accounts, the only thing that makes sense of all of the data, is that though no one was looking for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it actually happened. Jesus came forth from the tomb just as He said He would. And it's for that reason that everything has changed forever. That's the profound implication of the resurrection, that everything now changes forever. Nothing can remain the same. 
And I think Mark's account of the resurrection is pushing us towards that idea. Even its brevity, I think, makes sense of that conclusion. What will we do with this? Now, some have suggested that Mark's brevity in the account of the resurrection is because we've lost the second part of his account. It was there, but it's been lost in antiquity. And because we've lost it, that explains why verses 9 through 20 in some of your study Bibles make this notation that those verses were added at some point later to kind of round out Mark's gospel, but they really aren't part of the account. But then other scholars say, no, this is exactly how Mark purposed to end his gospel account. This brevity is in in exact keeping with Mark's sort of confrontational style to push us to consider the implications. That we are invited to stand with the women who are hearing this news for the very first time. And, and what does verse 8 tell us? That they were astonished. That they were trembling. That they were left speechless. Because what happens when you hear unbelievable news... We are left with no words. When we truly encounter something that does not make sense and yet is true, it it takes some time for us to fit it in because everything has changed now. We we have to fit in this new data. We we have to pause to see how it all works because this is a paradigm-shifting, momentous, life-altering moment. That's what was happening to the women. Jesus is risen. What does this mean? But Mark hasn't left us completely in the dark about the implications of the resurrection. So subtly, he's pushed us to consider at least three things that pop out of verse 7. Of course, the first one is the step of faith, right? The account of the resurrection is compelling us to believe. And we've already spoken about that. But also we see in verse 7, Mark subtly inviting us to receive the embrace of God's grace. What does the angel say to the women? He says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. You know, my daughter, my eldest daughter's home from college this weekend, it made me think about a story that happened when she was eight years old. Uh, she, she was at HEB um, getting the HEB Buddy Bucks, and I bet some of you children love to, to take those Buddy Bucks and try to win those prizes. And she was playing that game, and she got the 50-point sticker. That, that was the jackpot. And if you get the jackpot at HEB, I mean, you get toys, but you also get noticed because that's not an everyday experience at HEB. And so one of the, um, one of the uh, cashiers came over and spoke with Anna Catherine about this great news that she had just um, won, this 50-point sticker. And, and, and she said, you know, you got that because you are good. If you keep on being good, she said, then good things will come to you. Sounds like a good message, doesn't it? It reflects the the message of this world, doesn't it? See, that's what we intuitively think about our lives, that 
that life comes to good people. Good things happen to good people. And bad things happen to bad people. So you better be good. You better be good. But of course, that message that is intuitive to our conscience is not really a message of hope. It's actually a hopeless message because none of us are good enough to stave off the brokenness of our lives. In the end, the inexorable influence of death, the temptations of this world, our own sin have their way with us, and we discover in that dark moment that we don't have what it takes, that we do miss the mark, that we have failed, that we are not good. In fact, Paul writes, there is no one who is good. And, and that's why the message of Easter is so hopeful for us. Because it, it confirms that on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of our sins. He took our place. He died in, in our stead. And having paid that penalty and risen from the grave means that He has paid it in full. And so we have no longer a debt with our God. And so with the resurrection, as Jesus came forth from the tomb, so can we go forth in the confidence that our sins are forgiven. And when the angel says to the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter... What is the angel saying? That yes, Peter's denials were terrible, but they weren't catastrophic. That because Jesus suffered the catastrophe of the cross and the very wrath of God, that even Peter's sins are forgiven. Jesus is born the catastrophe of our sin and so offers us hope with the embrace of His grace. That's the first life-altering news of the resurrection. That grace gets the last word. That grace gets the last word. And if you're a sinner, there can be no better word spoken to us. In fact, I know that some of you are dismissive of the truth of the resurrection. You think that's a fabricated tale of religious hoax. But here's the thing. You may think that is the truth about the resurrection, and I appreciate your questions, but one thing that I want you to consider is this. Even if you don't believe the account of the resurrection, there must be a part of you, because this message about grace is so encouraging, there must be a part of you that wants it to be true. Because grace is truly good. Because grace is all about God not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what Jesus merited for us in our place. You may not believe the resurrection, but there's a part of you that wants it to be true. And so I want to encourage you to investigate it more. Could not the unbelievable be credible and the good news of the embrace of His grace be true? That's the first thing. But we also see in that same verse, verse 7, the angel tells the women to go. Go to Galilee. All of the gospel accounts speak of Jesus having a post-resurrection Galilean ministry, a retreat with the disciples. 
And that word go would define and occupy the disciples for the remainder of their lives, wouldn't it? Because the resurrection is true, the command to go and tell the world of this glorious news would become their mission. You see, that's the third thing that must happen on account of the resurrection. Believe, grace, and go. Go and tell the world of this good news. We must go and bear witness to the hope of the resurrection. You know, if you have a cure for cancer, and yet you didn't disclose this momentous discovery, what kind of person would you be? Even if it meant, even if knowing this this healing message that you had now discovered, but part of the, the healing process would mean leading patients into a difficult and lengthy period of suffering that would then issue forth in their recovery, would you then risk telling people? Of course you would. That's what good oncologists do, isn't it? And so I ask you this question, how can we not go and tell the world of this great and glorious news that Jesus has come back from the grave that speaks hope to a world in darkness, to hearts captive to sin, a world that is broken? Christian, the resurrection means that we cannot be silent about our hope. We must go and tell the world. Have you believed? Have you heard the embrace and message of His grace? And are you ready to go and tell of the good news in the Lord Jesus Christ? In an earlier sermon in our series on Mark, I spoke about the extreme tidal fluctuations that happen in the Bay of Fundy where the St. John's River, just a substantial river, it enters into the Bay of Fundy um, on the Canadian coast. And And prior to its entry into the bay, there are some waterfalls that are are significant. But the tidal fluctuations are so great that when the tide begins to come in, it overwhelms those waterfalls. And the river actually begins to flow backwards. And when I was sharing that story with you, I mentioned that this is how the grace of God is operative in our life, that it turns back the current of our sin and the darkness of this world. But what I didn't say is when the tide turns. And it turned at the resurrection. You see, when Jesus came forth from the grave, when He rose back from the dead, the tide of sin and death turned. And with, this, with His resurrection, the current of this world changed. God's grace and His mercy are the rising waters that overwhelms all of the darkness in this world, all of the brokenness in our lives, all of the tragedy that, that we hear about. Yeah, and I know what you're thinking because I read about it every day too. I read about Syria and North Korea and Russia, and I know about those threats that are closer to home, whether it's poverty in our city or injustice on the border or corruption in global companies. And those tragedies will, will continue. But, but, but the news of the resurrection is this, that, that He is the first fruit of an everlasting and new creation. 
that has changed the trajectory of this world. And with him, he is bringing a new world. The tide has changed. And he is inviting us to live into that hope. He's inviting us into that story. Have you believed? Have you received his grace? Are you ready to go and bear witness to this hope? Because this is what happens when the unbelievable comes true. It changes everything forever. Let's pray together. Lord our God, you are the God of change and hope. And though this world was filled with darkness, you spoke your light in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who could not be held captive by death, and so set us free from death and sin, so that we might together with you be forever. Might we, by your Spirit, and by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, have this assurance shape our lives, From this point forward, we pray in His name. Amen.